Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. The trucks may be gone from Ottawa. The Emergency Measures Act is over, but many questions remain. One of the key issues is whether or not the Freedom Convoy is a one-off protest or a political movement gathering momentum. One thing is evident. What happened cannot be ignored. Today's show will explore one of the undercurrents of the protest, radicalization. During the protests, extremism was on full display. Instances of racism, hate, intimidation took place amongst others trying to exercise their right to protest. Jennifer Wallowick, a co-leader of the Strengthening Canadian Democracy Initiative at Simon Fraser University, will talk about the aftermath of the protests and the lessons learned. She will also suggest ways to keep our communities in Northumberland places of vibrant democracy. Plus, she will suggest ways we can bridge the gap with those we don't see eye to eye. I'm so pleased to have with me today, Jennifer Wolowick, the co-lead of the Strengthening Canadian Democracy Initiative at Simon Fraser University's Morris J. Wosk Center for Dialogue. Welcome to Consider This. Thanks, Robert. I'm great. It's great to be here. While the protests in Ottawa and at Canada's international borders have for the most part ended, you have suggested these actions have revealed, quote, the foothold alt-right extremism uh, that has launched in Canada. Can you briefly give us an overview in broad strokes what you mean by this? Yeah, um, and first I think when you publish something, sometimes you use a phrase and a week later you realize maybe that wasn't the phrase. So I'm gonna first step back from the alt-right label and just talk about radicalization. We live in a community and in many communities where opposite opinions exist. We talk about that as polarization. Ideas always exist in a spectrum. That's normal. Having opposite ideas is not polarization. What becomes polarization or extremism is when we start to feel anger or animosity towards the individuals who hold different ideas. That's what we mean by polarization. And when we take those ideas and they become personal insults, they become screaming, they become the rage that we see sometimes, that's what we're talking about in terms of extremism. We're taking our ideas and we're turning them into personal attacks. So when I talk about the foothold of radicalization or the foothold of extremism, it's that shift in the way in which we interact with each other that I really wanna talk about. Why the difference? What, what has changed in your thinking? Yeah, so I work at the Morris J. Wall Center for Dialogue. We talk about dialogue a lot. And what it means is the idea that you don't know everything and you need to ask questions of others to figure it out. So much of us in our education systems, we grew up in what I would call a debate culture. 
we see this in the House and Commons. It's the idea of I've learned, I've read a couple articles, I know enough to argue a main point, and I'll argue it to death. And so part of it is also in dialogue, seeing how your words interact with others and how they respond. And how do you help others and yourself engage in an open conversation? So I've noticed in the feedback of this article that you're talking about that the word alt-right shuts down many people's ability to hold a dialogue. They think of it as a personal attack. They think of it as talking about them rather than talking about a systemic kind of thing that we're all feeling about. So by taking away kind of that emphasis of alt-right, I really want to talk about how we all sort of fall into these traps sometimes. Talk then about radicalization then. Can you help us better understand what it means to move in a direction where we become radicalized? Yeah, so there's an emphasis here around belonging. And we all, as human beings, we want to feel belonging. It's part of our core identity or our core need as human beings. And when you build community, it's all about belonging and mattering. Do I matter to others? And what we're seeing, especially around the protest, is a brilliant example of community building. So communities have sort of four different things. The first is symbols. You got to know who's in and who's out. Those are all over our nightly news right now. And language is also a really good symbol. You know, how, what is your definition of freedom compared to someone else's? What are people calling you when, you when you start to raise your opinion? Are you being called names? Those are all symbols. The next is influence. So if you're, you know, do you feel influence over the group or can you, which is even more effective, influence others? So I go back to my friends have you know, teenage daughters and their friends influence what they're, what they're wearing, what music they're doing. Like that's, that's being influenced by your group. But when you start to influence others, like, which is what protests do, it, it makes you feel really empowered. And that actually strengthens your core sense of belonging to a particular group and particular ideas. The third is what we're also all experiencing is around, are our needs being met right now? What do I need as a human being to get up in the morning and feel safe, to feel like I have a future for my family? Is my systems, is my MP, is what I hear in the House of Commons meeting those needs? And right now we're, just really, really anxious. And we're all of us are questioning whether or not our needs are being met. So we're looking for folks who lean into those symbols and those feelings of influence to help us feel safer. And then the final is, is around spirit. Like, does it feel good to be part of this group? Is it a party? Is it bringing joy because you get to high five and whatnot? So that's some of the things that we're all feeling. And then these protests really help us sort out, you know, am I on that side or am I on this side? And that's what I'm talking about in terms of difference is this like very binary sorting of our communities. When in fact, we all are part of multiple communities. We're part of our workplace community. We're part of our family community. We're part of our neighborhood. We're part of our apartment building. I also use it as, you know, sometimes I'm a pedestrian and sometimes I'm a driver. And the way in which I, I interact with others will change. When I'm in a sidewalk and when I'm on a sidewalk or if I'm in a crosswalk, I really want cars to be slow and I get very frustrated when someone rolls through a stop sign. As soon as I get behind a wheel, I am that person rolling through a stop sign. You know, and I'm frustrated by the person crossing the street. So we're always shifting and always changing. And that's what's different now is we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that we're part of multiple communities all the time. Now we tend to sort ourselves into a single community or we think of ourselves as a single community based on a few core ideas or a few core statements. And that's really what shifted. There is a, a philosopher called Robert Talese. He writes about democracy. He writes that you know the whole point of democracy is so most of us don't have to think po about politics, 
most of the time. And what has happened in the last 20 years or so is now we sort of lead with our political identities. I'm a conservative and I go to church and I do this and I do that. I'm a liberal and I go get fancy lattes and I go and do this other things and things, or I'm a green and I won't get a fancy latte because I don't want a single glass cup. And so we've lined up our identities in ways that they've never been lined up before. So what you've described in, in a, a, a functioning world uh, would seem very much in the center of things. How do we get to these extreme points where it becomes divisive? So this is called what, what um, experts would call belief polarization. And so when you only talk to people who agree with you, you and your and the group you're talking to are your ideas tend to become more extreme. It's a proven uh, theory. It's been followed for about 60 years. So what has happened in the last two years? We've been told to isolate. We've been told, like I live in British Columbia. I was told for a year I should only hang out with six people. What do I do? I pick six people who agree with me all the time because I feel good. I feel like I matter. But what happens is when I'm only talking with those six people, what I'm talking about, my, my attachment to those ideas, I'm only hearing people who agree is that I become more and more extreme in that position in that I become more committed that I'm right. I'm less able to think through some critical aspects of where I might be wrong. And I seek that agreement more and more. And so this is what you're talking about. How does it happen? It's when we only talk to people when we agree with each other, we silo ourselves on social media. We only go to spaces with where people who agree with us, we lose the skill at actually absorbing and interacting with difference or with disagreement. How was the protests an example then of this process that you've just walked us through? Can you use that as a, a template to illustrate the ideas that you've shared with us so far? Mm -hmm. So Harvard University came out with a report just in the last week that talks about, you know, we're kind of in a fight or flight perspective. They actually don't like the word polarization, but they like to actually put it into what trauma experts would call our reptilian brains. So when you feel anxiety about big things you can't control, you go into what's called your reptilian brain. And that's really what is your fight or flight. We have other functions of our brain, but they require a sense of safety and a sense of comfort. And that's, that's your critical thinking, or that's your uh, ability to move through the world and follow rules. And so what's going on in this example is you have folks who are fearful of, of and, and it's, it's across the board. We're all a little fearful of how, what the climate change is gonna do, what automization is gonna do to our jobs. Our pensions aren't what our parents' pensions were at all. I'm a, a younger person, I'm looking to get into the housing market. My, the dollar that I make is not the same dollar my parents made. It cannot buy as many things. That's really scary when I grew up saying, I, did, like, I grew up in a family that said, you're gonna own your own home. You're gonna be comfortable. You, if you work really hard, everything is gonna work out. What we're in a moment today across all our generations where we've worked really hard and things are not necessarily working out. And so that's a, that's a core fear. And so as you try to navigate through that, it's really hard to think about how little power our prime minister has to actually fix inflation and accept that. And we don't have a path through that. 
And so when you have that sense as core, you're looking for the other things that give you safety. And when someone gives you um, a person to blame, a system to blame, a thing you can name to blame, like a vaccine mandate, it's attractive. It gives a sense of empowerment and it gives a sense of safety. And so you're going to show up because not only are they telling you this is a thing to blame, you're being told show up at noon on a Saturday and drive your truck and you will help fix it. There, there is a simple solution to an extremely complex problem and you can be a part of it. And so what we watch with the protest is this really effective. People want to show up and they want to help and they want to be a part of a system. But what's happened is we've lost our ability to really think through and sit down at just how complicated that system is and just how hard it is to fix. And COVID is a brilliant example of a really complex problem. The problem, the virus is shifting at the same time we're shifting our responses to it. And we aren't quite catching up because that's how viruses work. And it's a really hard thing to accept. And two years into a pandemic, we're all really tired, which means our ability to show up and be critical and to be you know, kind is really tired. So we're gonna shift into that fight or flight mode. You have also said publicly that the government response to the protesters was outmatched by the misinformation, organization, and recruitment of extremists. How did you draw that conclusion? What we know on theories around QAnon or what we're, we've seen in the state that's now is happening here is that you know these organizations are not happening in places where I tend to frequent. Uh, we're getting a little bit of Facebook Live uh, but they're happening on their own channels. Uh, they're happening in their own systems. And so folks, you know, will click on something online and then they'll, they'll follow a bread trail. And those who study this um, know this better than I. But, you know, they, there's a bread trail of things that will get you into these spaces. And that's really what we don't fully understand. We don't know how to control it. We don't know if we should control it, you know, around our, our freedom of information online. But once you follow this breadcrumb and you start to get into this hub where, only people who agree with you, who are giving you symbols, who are giving you ways to belong, usually around different interests or different concerns, you know, it's really, really motivating to then show up or then to repeat things or to minimize the harms that certain people in that group could be doing. And that's where we're talking about. Um, one of those steps to radicalization is you wanna belong so much, you're, you're gonna ignore or you're going to downplay the presence of swastikas, the presence of hate speech, within a group that you wanna belong in. You're gonna ignore that. And then um, there's a book called Sally, uh, that Sally Cohn wrote, who's called The Opposite of Hate. And she talks about, you know, as you follow these breadcrumbs and you feel that belonging and you're gonna minimize that act, it's not till you're really core to the group that anyone is gonna ask you to pick up a, a, a spray can and, and commit a hate crime. You're, you're deep down the hole. And so when I say that, you know, the government doesn't have the tools to keep up, it's because these movements are happening in multiple places online across multiple platforms. They're in our living rooms, they're on our cell phones, they're, in our, they're literally in our pockets to way to access to certain kinds of information. And the government is six steps behind and we're, we're in a debate and I honestly don't have the answer about whether or not we should control these spaces or how to control these spaces or if it's the role of government to control these spaces. But these spaces exist and they, and 
they tend to lead us towards certain types of thinking or actions. I want to know what tools did the organizers use specifically to fulfill the goals that we saw manifest over the last couple of weeks? And why do you not think this is just a one-off? I love that you asked this question. I think it's really telling that I'm pausing on it and I'm having a hard time picking out a particular story uh, because this is the way these movements work. Um, uh, protests bring together a ton of different groups. It's not just one group, but many, and they, they're leaning into different aspects that feel great um, or why you wanna show up. So you have folks who are talking about freedom, for example. Maybe we'll use that. So we're here protecting freedom. My ability to show up is about freedom. That is a really, that's a statement that's really hard to be against. You know, I'm, I'm personally, I love freedom. The fact that as I talked about, the whole point of democracy is so that I don't have to think about politics is an act of freedom. What has happened in that messaging is that the second half of our, that, that sentence uh, that is the introduction of our uh, charters and rights and freedoms is not talked about. And that sentence is about the limits to freedom and that they are subject to considerations for the whole group. So we have a protest that's talking about individual freedoms in a country whose legislation and our core document actually says your freedom is also about the freedom of your neighbors and about that consideration. And that we have a mechanism called the courts to figure that out. So instead of thinking through that part and okay, how do we get our, our courts to function better? What is the legislation that we need to shift so that I can feel like I can maneuver in the world and I can protect that 80 year old grandmother who lives at the end of the block who might be immunocompromised? That second step is forgotten. Instead, we've shown up to, to, to chant for freedom. We've shown up, or like you've shown up to chant for freedom and forget that freedom isn't free. And I say it's not free because of that consideration of how I have to show up in the world to protect my neighbor or to think about my neighbor. And to, you know, I might have to wear a mask to support my neighbor. It feels like crap on my face. It reminds me of all my insecurities. It reminds me of that, you know, my job is affected by rules that I have no control over. But my freedom means I'm also protecting my neighbor. And this is also part of the backlash towards the protest in Ottawa, in that the protest made others feel unsafe. Businesses were shut, streets were closed down, horns blared for two weeks straight. So your, the protest for freedom impacted the freedom of those in Ottawa, those on trying to cross borders. And that's one of those examples of how a particular message has been shared online, has been written on signs, has had leaders talk about this on their nightly Facebook Live about the importance of individual freedoms, but there isn't a dialogue around what that actually means and what are the trade-offs around freedom that we actually need to lean into in order to sort our way through a pandemic. What's preventing us from actually breaking free 
and having the ability to uh, uh, have these discussions. All, all I can think about is right now, there's a, a river here in uh, Northumberland, the Ganaraska River, that's full of ice at the mouth. And it's all jammed up and the water's all jammed up. And all I can think of when you're talking is that metaphor of all this jammed ice and we can't get things flowing. What do we need to do to get that, get those dialogues back and, and uh, the, the, the back and forth so that we are thinking about the things that you've been mentioning? Step one, we all take a big collective breath. We're in this for the long haul. There is no quick and easy linear path. And we need folks to start saying those words. We need to be honest, this is gonna be super hard. Uh, we need to hear those plain spoken, you know what? We're in it now. It's gonna take work to get through. It's gonna take some individual work. It's also gonna take some big funding and some big thinking. So there is this um, framework of democratic competencies that we can look towards, which was written by the Council of Europe. And here in Canada and North America, we talk a lot about our democratic values. So this is freedom. It is rule of law. It is you know, the right to be heard. And what the Council of Europe has done has broken that apart into skills, into pieces of knowledge and into attitudes. And so what we need to do is to think through, okay, what is the skill that I need to demonstrate to my kids, to my family? And one of those skills is being able to show compromise. One of those skills is, be, is active listening and being able, instead of responding to what someone's telling you, to repeat back to them and be sure that you're getting it right. Questions. I also use this a lot, especially with folks um, in my circles who know a lot and think a lot about a lot of things. I'm like, could you ask three questions to someone before you respond? So you're talking about freedom. I'm not gonna, I should, I should have just demonstrated asking you what freedom means to you instead of launching into my own perspective. So that's another simple thing that you can do individually to clear that ice block is, you know, when someone is telling me something that really irks me, it gets under my skin. It feels really awful instead of jumping into telling someone how you're feeling or what you're thinking, is there a question you can ask them? Something in what they've just said that you, can, you, you feel like you should learn more about. Doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but you know I, the phrase I love to say is to repeat a phrase back to someone and say, can you unpack that for me? Can you unpack what that means? And often that will lead you into a conversation towards better understanding someone's motivations, someone's fears, that sort of undercurrent of what is actually going on for them. And that's one of those skills we need to get back to individually. Collectively, as you know, a nation, we need to think deeply and have a long dialogue about our party system because our parties now are in that space of polarization. I'm part of my party, this is how I think, this is what I do. This is the way you know, the opposition is yelling at the, at the prime minister and vice versa. Instead, we need to think about how do we want to show up in this space? What are the skills we want our MPs to demonstrate uh, in our legislatures and in our, our House of Commons? And we need to hold them to that. They should be our role models, not our cheerleaders. They should be the best of us, not, our, um, not a polarization example. 
So those are some of the things that we can do individually and collectively. And then the other thing we need to do is really think about, you know, how I show up in my own community with my neighbors. How am I demonstrating that I'm making my community a better place? Am I putting in a garden with my neighbors? Am I helping out my church group with, you know, a youth camp? Uh, how am I showing up and giving um, to my community? Because that's what creates those, those four things as well. Those symbols, that influence, that feeling fulfilling of needs or that spirit and practice all of those skills in those spaces. Your arguments might get some people saying, now, hold on a minute. This sounds a bit over the top. You know, we're, we're talking about a, a minority of people that were involved with these protests. And we hear time and again, the majority of Canadians don't support the Freedom Convoy or its objectives. How do you respond to that? I think it's appropriate to question how much power a minority actually has. I think that it's a good thing to constantly remind ourselves that I think the latest poll is 80% of Canadians disagree with the convoys, that 90% of our truckers are double vaccinated because those are facts we need to land back to. What concerns me is the way in which this is showing up and its frequency. So a year ago, I wrote a, uh, a response to the January 6th um, assault. And I said, this, this anger, this fear that activates people in this way exists here. And we tend to deny it. And what's happening in the last month is I don't think we can deny it anymore. Yes, Canada is different. Yes, as I talked about, our sense of common good, our common freedoms is stronger than the United States. I grew up in the States. I know both places. It's stronger here. We need to lean into that. But we cannot say we're not like that anymore. That doesn't exist north of the border because it does. And it is an incredibly um, contagious feeling. To, to, so it's contagious when someone gives you a simple thing to blame and a place to show up and a way to act, right? That's where belonging happens. That sense can be contagious. That's how movements grow. And what we've seen in the last three weeks is just how quickly it can grow. You know, there's the, the convoy that started and it went to Ottawa and then it took over our borders. And then every weekend here in British Columbia, there's a convoy to our border. It's in Edmonton, it's in uh, Nova Scotia. You know, this is different. And this, is, this shows us where it can go and, and really forces us to think about how do we take that momentum and that need for all of us to feel belonging and to really think through the challenges that we're facing as a society and as a globe and steer that need for belonging and action into better channels. And a lot of those better channels are your neighborhoods and are your, back, your backyards and rebuilding that sense of localized community and that engagement with your neighbor because your neighbor doesn't exactly think like you all the time. That is the first place that you might encounter difference. And that's your place to practice those democratic skills. If there is a real danger in the rise of extremism, what can be done? And let's let's start with the federal government. Can you say some concrete things that the federal government and our politicians should be doing? One, I would like us to, to do something similar to the Council of Europe's framework of democratic competencies and fund some curriculum and a national dialogue around what it means to be Canadian. What are the skills that Canadians have that we want to share with the rest of the world? 
And that needs to be deeply entrenched with how do we navigate what it means to actually practice truth and reconciliation in this country? What does it mean to be a, a nation that openly welcomes first-generation immigration? How, how do our democratic skills and competencies for those goals, which we hold collectively, show up in the world? And, and get that as part of top of our brains again and thinking about that what that means and then pull that into our schools but also pull that into our church groups pull that into our youth groups pull that into our bowling clubs and my my friend's curling club up the street you know there's there's spaces where our interests can actually align with our skills and how we show up in the world so that's one thing i think the federal government really needs to do i think the federal government also needs to really think about what crises we're facing how to publicly educate people around the complications of those crises and think of a way through Hope is not the absence of difficulty. Hope is the ability to see a path through the obstacle course. We all know there's a big obstacle course facing us around the death of fossil fuels in Canada. It's coming, whether we like it or not, but they're running out. We do not see a path through the obstacle course and we need one. So that, those will be two big things I think we have to start practicing. The third is we need to start demanding better of our political party system in terms of who they're nominating and how those folks are showing up in the world. The, uh, after the 2019 election, there was a poll and it said that, you know, two thirds, I believe, and um, were that, you know, they were a little bit disillusioned by the election. Elections don't make us feel great in this country because of the competition, because of the negativity, because of the scapegoating. And that's because anger and frustration we think that gets to people to the polls, but what if we tried something different? What if we actually had folks that we were like, my God, that person is so smart. I'm so glad they're running for office. When was the last time we had that feeling about our MPs? And what if that was a feeling we had about 90% of our MPs? And what if, how would that shift our, our democracy? Another area you suggest is police reform. And after the way we watched the Ottawa police respond, the RCMP and the OPP uh, here in Ontario, what are you saying needs to be addressed? One is we need better understanding of how police de-escalate. So this is where I can look at that of my nightly news and be like, okay, I can look at this protest and I can look at this other protest here in BC. And the way the cops show up on day one is very, very different. And I have no idea why. And we also need to accept there's some systemic issues in that space. How you look, how you show up, what you're protesting about is a factor in how police decide their de-escalation. And it's different based on the color of your skin sometimes. And we need to just name that and accept that. And what does that mean for all of us? If our police, we, we cannot predict the response of our police in you know, concrete ways. That creates disillusion, that creates distrust, and that distrust can fuel into other parts of institutions. So what's happening right now is folks are watching this, uh, what was an inaction for several weeks. I don't know exactly why there was an inaction, but there was inaction that would not have happened if a different group of protesters had headed on a convoy to Ottawa. It would have been different and we need to accept that first and foremost. We need to understand a like the, the current state of why it would be different. And then we need to think about, it probably shouldn't be different. And what are the changes we need to make to 
you know, fix that and make our RCMP response, make our police response more consistent, regardless of your economic status or the color of your skin. And so I'd point people to Nova Scotia and to the police board of Halifax as they have a list of 36 different recommendations that are about how do you help people understand what public trust is and what needs to be done. Others have made similar arguments about the equality of treatment by police comparing it to how say indigenous people or Black Lives Matter. Yet the pipeline protests that have gone on for much longer than 24 days in Ottawa and even the pipeline protests in Belleville, Ontario that stopped trains running back in February of 2020 went on for 20 days before the police acted. Is it really that different? This protest went on for three weeks, 21 days, 24 days, something like that. Was it really different? I would say one of the differences is the impact upon others. This is what you're hearing around the signs people post in Ottawa of make Ottawa boring again is that you know, businesses were impacted, other families were impacted. You had folks who were talking about, who were blocking the border because they were talking about their economic safety, you know, that, that mandates would impact their ability to have a job. And so the protest was blocking something that impacted Canada's economy. There was a hypocrisy there. What I think is different is that impact. What I also think is different is the way in which police show up and were photographed in those spaces. So this is not every cop at all, but we had too many instances of viral videos of cops hugging protesters or you know, supporting the movement, delivering food or helping. You know, There's a video of someone helping with a tent. There might be logic behind why the cops are showing up in that way. We don't know what it is. De-escalation is often about you know, getting, a, getting that offender to calm down by trying to build rapport. I don't, I want to hear the experts talk about that more. So that's what needs to be different is the actual unpacking of what is going on that we're seeing and why that might be so, because we jump to these conclusions of like, that would not have happened at a protest, uh, at, at, of an indigenous protest. For example, we have the Waitson in Suetan here in Northern BC. And the stage at which the militarization of RCMP is very different, what they're wearing on that first or second encounter is very different than the first two weeks of the protest. It happened this weekend. We saw that militarization of police. We saw them with their full riot gear, but it took a few weeks. And so how are they showing up in those spaces? What are the videos that we're seeing? What is, what is that comment? Like what is that first visualization is that it shows that dichotomy between the two spaces? You've mentioned a number of things uh, in regards to how people living in communities uh, can respond. And so uh, can you summarize for us, for those of us living in Northumberland, what can be done on a local level? When you go out to dinner and you encounter a rule that makes you upset, one thing you can do is take a breath. You can think about why that rule exists and you can ask questions of others about how they feel about that rule. That would be one thing you can do individually. And then you know, think about the ways in which we all are part of different communities. One thing we have to do at very local individual levels is think about something called our attribution errors. And so this, an attribution error is when you see one thing about somebody that sort of annoys you. And thus you jump to a stage where everything about that person must be wrong. 
And you are right to point that out and to put them in their place. So this attribution error is where you might take, you know, someone believes in something that I disagree with, thus everything about them is unlike me and is bad. The next jump there is then to say, and I should call them out for that. This is a common human behavior that we at local levels need to check ourselves on. Oh, am I taking a, an example of someone in a big truck and being super angry at them because they must be part of the convoy and thus I should flip them off as I pass them on the road? That is an attribution error from the opposite side. And then we need to call ourselves on it individually. We need to call our friends on it individually. We need to call our friend, our family on it when it happens and say, hey, you know, we got to remember it's more complicated. Got to remember to smile a little bit more in the world. It's a little bit harder when you're wearing a mask, but you know, there's something now called your eye, your eyes will smile. You know, when you smile behind a mask, you can tell because your eyes are squinted. We need to do that a bit more. Local governments need to create opportunities for people to feel empowered and to see the feedback loops that happen in government. So we have individual and now we're on to local levels. Local levels, we have, we often have community committees or we have public hearings or we have ways in which people can influence our local government. We know that it's most effective because you actually can see the physical change in your street. You know, that you need, to, but there's work there that local governments have to do to help people realize how their input changes things. Because often what happens is you might show up at an open house about a, um, a development happening in your city or, or down your street, you put your sticky note on a board and then it goes into a black box of staff analysis and it shows up six months later in a report and a decision is made. And it might not be the decision you want. Thus your feeling is my comment didn't count. It wasn't part of the decision. Instead, we need to put more emphasis, not just on the collection of ideas, but in educating folks on where their ideas land in the spectrum and why decisions were made in the way that they were. Was it really just majority rules or is there more trade-offs that are being considered? And often there are a lot of trade-offs that are happening in any government decision. Nothing is black and white, nothing is majority rules. It is a lot of trade-offs. And that's one of the democratic skills that we've forgotten is how to analyze trade-offs and then to accept when I'm on the outskirts of that opinion and to be like, okay, there are logical reasons why this decision is made. And the place where that can really happen and really land is at local government levels. And that emphasis in our communication teams of our local government uh, panels, not just to explain what's going on, not just to get people out to participate, but then to close the loop and say, your comment was really valuable because it forced us to make this consideration a bit more deeply, but X, Y, and Z is why we went against it. Next time, tell us more about X, Y, and Z. How should we handle that next time? And so that's one thing that the local governments can start doing and local communities can do is really think about how do we help re-educate or educate for the first time that things are always complicated and our voice matters, but, we, but there's a difference between being heard and having the decision side our way. Jennifer Wolick, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That was Jennifer Wolowick, co-lead of the Strengthening Canadian Democracy Initiative at Simon Fraser University's Morris J. Wasik Center for Dialogue. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. 
Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.